Good morning. Again, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me one more time. Um, this will be the last time for a while. <laughs> and uh, I've been asked back, so I appreciate that. <laughs> so um, I have a couple of friends with me, uh, Doc and Peg Soulsby, Dr. Eugene Soulsby. He was uh, my minister of music for eight years at, at uh, First Baptist Burley in, in uh, Burley, Idaho. And uh, they're up visiting with us this weekend, and he agreed to undergo um, a lobotomy and came here for, uh, to hear me <laughs> preach. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad he's here. So um, we've been looking at the book of First Timothy, and uh, I wanted to take you through the book. I believe the Lord wanted to take you guys through the book in lieu of you looking for a pastor. Um, it's all about pastoring a church. It's a, uh, Paul is um, mentoring his young uh, protege, Timothy. Um, he's teaching him how to look for people that can take leadership in the church, and so it has a, a, some real practical applications throughout it. The first part of the book, um, you know, we've looked at that. We've looked at uh, the qualifications of a deacon and of an elder in chapter 3. Um, we've looked at some of the other stuff in the first couple of chapters. Chapter 3, verse 15, it comes to a place where, there, where most scholars consider it a hinge, if you would, of the book. Um, I didn't ask her to put this up, but Paul says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the book is about the order of the church. It's about, it's about really putting the church together so that it can reach its community for Christ. And uh, Paul was obviously very, what, what we call missional-minded, and so he, he had every intent of helping Timothy be... Uh, an excellent pastor in uh, Ephesus of that day. And as I said later, uh, at some point um, in the next 20 or 30 years, uh, they used to have church in the Colosseum in Ephesus. I, I've been in Ephesus, and uh, um, they later burned or, or uh, threw Christians to the lions, but they had, uh, they had church in the Colosseum there. They have as many as 20,000 people, it's, it's told. So apparently what Paul was teaching him and what ended up eventually happening was is that uh, the church grew under this. And as, they, as, as Timothy practiced these things, um, the church became very effective in the, the town of Ephesus. The, first, the last three chapters, though, of the book are warnings about things that can cause serious problems in the church and how to take care of those. And so we're going to start today in chapter 4. And we're going to look at the first five verses. It's, um, I'm going to spend some time there because of some of the things that are going on in our culture. Uh, there's a lot of heretical teaching and, and um, problem ideas that are floating around our culture that are bringing a lot of um, pain to people, but also it's being a great threat to the church here in America. Paul began this section in the last part of the chapter 3 with that with a call to the basics of the gospel and the recognition of Christ as central to the message of the church. Um, as we begin chapter 4, we'll find that Paul starts with a strong warning to Timothy 
about heretical teachers who teach demonic doctrine, and he calls it that. He gives us a description of those who teach this demonic doctrine, a call to be wise and understand what Satan is doing by using the people. Um, I've titled today's message, uh, Spiritual Listening. I did not title it intentionally, Listening to God. Because we have lots of voices that are speaking to us that we hear both um, in our heart, in our spirit, in our mind, but also out in our culture. And we need to be able to listen to them with a discerning heart so that we will realize the lies often that are coming at us. And our world, unfortunately, is filled with lies. And if you do not have the Spirit of God working in you and under a clear understanding, I'm going to hit this a few times, but there needs to be a clear understanding of the Word of God, you will struggle to discern what you're listening to. And that's showing itself um, all throughout the United States and, and really in Western thought. Western Europe is uh, our grandparents, if you would. So, used to be, uh, you may have heard this before, but it used to be that when you became a bank teller, um, they would put you through a, a, a series of lessons in how to feel a dollar or a $5 bill or $10 bill, 20 whatever, 100 And the reason they did that was because when a counterfeit bill would come across, often the teller, he, she'd be doing like this or he, you know, running through the bills, and he might not notice a counterfeit bill, but if he felt it with his thumb and his forefinger, he could stop and realize that they were being taken advantage of. And that's what I want to do today. As, I, as we look at this, I want us to become so discerning, I'm going to use this word a lot today, so discerning that when something comes across <clears throat> the fourth finger and thumb of our mind, in our heart, we realize that there's something wrong, that this is not the truth. It's not the gospel. It's not what makes for good living. So let me read from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So let's sanctify this message with prayer, if you'd pray with me. Father, we ask that you would uh, enliven your word. We've asked that the Holy Spirit be here in our song, and we ask, Lord, that you would just fill this place, fill this atmosphere with your presence, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would give us discerning hearts to see truth and to see um, falsehood and lies. And Lord, that we would be equipped with that so that we might lovingly... Um, touch others and help them to unwind the deceptions that they're in. 
Lord, I, I pray that you'd bless this message and bless our time together around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want to just talk about is discerning truth. And we're gonna, the whole message is sort of going to be built around this, but I just want to really get an, an understanding um, about what discerning truth is all about. I, I believe that today there's a great need to be discerning. It would seem to me that if you look at what is going on around us, you'd find that there's a total lack of discernment amongst people today. I don't think you have to look very far to see that. Um, we just celebrated Pride Week this week in our community. There is a total lack of understanding truth and discerning righteousness that's mixed into all of that. I would argue that the reason for this is a lack of biblical knowledge and a lack of understanding of how God works and who he really is. Discernment is necessary for nearly every area of life. We need discernment for our jobs and for how we interact with people. <clears throat> we need discernment to discipline our children and to live with our spouses. Webster's Dictionary defines discernment like this. I have a very lengthy um, definition. I'm only going to give you part of it, but pay attention to this. It's sort of interesting. He defines it like this. One, to detect with the eyes or discern, he gives the example of discerning a figure approaching through the fog. Now just think about that for a second. I have, um, over the years, acquired the ability, you probably have too, you don't realize it, but you can see the way a person walks and you know who they are. And if there's fog all around that person, it may hide that for a minute. We have to be discerning about what we see. But then he goes on with this. He says to detect with senses other than vision. Now that's what we're talking about today. To detect with senses other than vision. To recognize or identify as separate and distinct. He uses the synonym discriminate. Discern that is right from wrong. To come to know or recognize mentally unable or it's to be unable to discern someone's motives. My mother had the gift of discernment, unlike anybody I've ever met. She could be in a room with somebody for about five to ten minutes, and she would know exactly what they were about. It was just uncanny. Um, I would bring young ladies to my house <laughs> for my mother to discern. <laughs> I remember bringing this one. She was a beautiful blonde. I thought, man, this is the one. And I brought her in, and my mother, you know, they talked for a little while, and I'm totally off the, my sermon, excuse me. But, <laughs> but she, a uh, lady left, and, and she looked at me and says, you know, that one's going to be really tough to get rid of. <laughs> what? And she started saying things about this gal's character that I had not even begun to pick up. When I met my wife, <clears throat> I'd had one or two dates with her, and we walked, my mother came to visit me at seminary, and we walked into the library, and Lynn came bounding down the steps, all happy and vivacious, and we, uh, we introduced her and all did all that, and then we walked out to the car, and as we walked out, my mother was this tall, she was five foot three, had 
flaring green eyes, and she looked up at me, and she says, go get Lynn, and let's have lunch with her, and I said, no, mom, I don't want to lead her, you know, down the, I don't want to, you know, make her think something else is going on, and she goes, go get Lynn, and we're going to have lunch with her, and I said, no, mom, and she went, you go get her right now, <laughs> okay, we finished lunch, I brought her back to the library. My mom turned in the car and she says, now that's a good one. She gave her approval and we got married. I could tell you other stories about my mom's discernment. Some people have that ability. Most of us don't. But we do have the ability via the word of God to measure things according to what God's word says. That's why you have to be a student of the word. It's so important. You will not see clearly in life unless you can grab hold of the word. <clears throat> Some of the synonyms, if you would, for uh, discernment are, are discrimination. I thought that was interesting. And he's not talking about discriminating colors. He's talking about discriminating ideas and character. Perception, that is seeing. Penetration, seeing deeply into something. That's what my mother could do. Insight, and then he used the word accume, which means a power to see what is not evident to the average mind. Christians need to be discerning. And so Timothy is, is equipping us right here as we go through this passage. He's beginning to equip us so that we might be discerning about the people we deal with, about our culture. And I would like to say as well, the kind of man you want to lead you as a pastor. You need to be discerning, but then you need to find out if he is, because he needs to see things clearly so that he can lead you rightly. Doesn't that make sense? So I believe that this is what Paul is, was trying to do, uh, or trying to get Timothy and the leaders of the church at Ephesus and, and for us today to understand. We need to have discernment. He was not the only New Testament writer that dealt with this. Listen to what uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 2, or like Luke chapter 12, verse 54. He said this, Then he also said to the multitudes, Whatever you, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately he said, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you cannot discern the time? Can you and I discern the time we're at right now? I'm not calling us hypocrites, please. Don't misunderstand me. Let Jesus do that. But, but we, we should be those who can discern what's going on around us. Otherwise, we get sideswiped by things. We don't even see it coming. He went on to say in John chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew the same word, same Greek word for knew is discerned. He discerned all men. He knew what was going on inside of them and had no need that anyone should testify for man, for he knew what was in man. I think we should be asking God, regularly help me see things clearly and understand what's in that person that I'm dealing with heart and mind what's really going on 
The Spirit of God will give you discernment if you ask. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can discern what's going on around us. Hebrews 4.12, the writer of Hebrews said, For the word of God, I love this. Now think about this for a second. This is neat. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner, or is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? Come on, what is it? The word of God. I've read that passage hundreds of times and it hit me this week. The word of God is the discerner. If you don't know the word, you're going to get sideswiped or, or hoodwinked. You're, 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 you're going to be overcome by something that comes at you that you need discernment for. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with affection of Jesus Christ. And in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment. You guys pray for each other for it to have discernment? That's what Paul prayed, that we might have discernment. And in verse 10 he says, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense all the day of Christ. I think that one of the things that sort of overwhelmed me this week about this passage is, is how much we need each other. <laughs> That's what God, why uh, God put us together as a church. We need each other. I needed my mom's discernment to make a wise decision about my life partner. I need other people's discernment to help me in the past, to help me lead the churches I was pastoring. I didn't do it all by myself. You probably need discernment when you meet together in your leadership meetings. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a Baptist, so I'm not exactly sure what to call that, your, your elder board or whatever. See, we need each other. Some people have that gift. All of us should have that ability. My mom had the gift. I do not have that gift. I'll just tell you that right now. But I do have the ability because I work it. And I'm not saying that proudly. Please, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm just, we need each other. Discernment was important to Paul, to Jesus, and to the writer of Hebrews, as well as all the New Testament church. It should be important as, to us today, especially in the times we live in. Now, understanding this, we can grasp, hopefully, better what Paul is saying to Timothy as he gives him instructions for discerning what Satan is doing in the church, he pastors. So the next thing I want you to see here is uh, Paul alludes to deceiving spirits in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, again, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Those are pretty heavy words, pretty in, intense, if you would. Paul was a man who listened to the Spirit of God and discerned what he had to say. Because of that, he could understand what Satan was doing at, at the new church. That the, the church at Ephesus was a new church. 
First, Paul says that the Spirit expressly says or explicitly warns. The Greek there is, has that, that, that intensity about it. The Spirit of God is and was trying to warn what is happening to that church that Timothy was pastoring. There were problems, and Paul could see what was causing them in the Spirit. And so he's trying to help. He's trying to encourage. The problems arose from people who could not discern what Spirit was talking to them. The reason for this was they did not really understand the truth well enough to see the difference when error was laid in front of them. And, and in this is a great call for spiritual maturity. How do you mature as a Christian? How do you mature? Well, I'm going to go back to this one thing. You've got to be in the Word of God. You've got to be obedient to it. You've got to walk with God and let Him lead you through it, by it. You have to apply it. We've gotten way away from that in our modern culture. That's one of the reasons we're where we're at. Is we have, the Word of God is our anchor. And we've, we've let the anchor go loose and we're floating without an anchor. So you mature as you spend time in the Word. And that does not come quickly. Maturity is a process. And so I would encourage you as you look for a pastor, be sure that they have matured. Um, Doc and I were talking about uh, my pastoring at, at Burley. They took me on as a 35-year-old guy who had never pastored a church. They took a chance with me. And I was there eight years, and we had some really crazy things happen. And God taught me and matured me quite a bit. But they were gracious with me. They were gentle with me. Much of the time, there were some harsh times. It was a pioneer area. 70% of the community was Mormon. But they were gracious, and they, they worked with me. Maturity is something that takes time. And I'm not saying I'm Mr. Mature now. Please don't misunderstand me. But I've got a few years under my belt. <laughs> so, the reason for, uh, for their needing to grow in maturity uh, was that they did not really under, understand the truth well enough to see the difference when error was laid out in front of them. So they fell for false teachers. Much of the church today falls for for false teachers. And let me give you a, a, a horrible example. 75 to 80%, as I understand it, this is a, a bit old statistic, but 75 to 80% of all Mormon co converts are from the Baptist church. What does that tell you? Most of the Baptist church is not, and I'm a Baptist, or I was, um, most of the Baptist church is not teaching the Word of God and how to handle it properly, how to use it as a sword of the Spirit. And so consequently, people get hoodwinked into what they think is something good, but in reality, Mormonism is something very evil. I'm not going to go way down that road, but Mormonism is a spur in my saddle. <laughs> it, it is, it, and people, when they fall for it, you... you where did, where did that come from? How did you grab that? How did you believe that? You all know, I'm just going to throw this in. You all know that the Jesus of Mormonism 
is the brother of Satan. They teach that. That's their doctrine. And that he is a created being. Did you know that all, every single cult you can name out there deviates around the uh, deity of Jesus? Anything that deviates around the deity of Jesus is a doctrine of demons. (laughs) But if you don't know your word, and they come to you and they say, well, this is how we love one another, and this is what we do, you know, you may be pulled right into that. When you get a new believer, wrap him up in your arms and disciple him and bring him along so that he can stay away from these kinds of doctrines of demons. Teaching of demons is anything that is devoid of Christ or biblical teaching. It's anything that's devoid of the deity of Christ. It's anything that's devoid of the fact that Christ died on the cross to save us. And he alone, by faith alone in him, is the only one who can take us to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Period. Exclusive statement, but utterly true. You cannot deviate from that. Satan is an imitator, so he teaches things that are not from God, but are so close that if you do not watch out, you will be taken in. They're they're in that fog that I was talking about earlier, and you need to see it clearly. Those who depart from the faith have paid attention to deceitful spirits and been led astray. They've fallen for the teaching of demons, and consequently, they do not really understand the results of their grasping and living out these false beliefs. Demons teach through people who look very normal. (laughs) Remember, we're in a warfare, and we're in the warfare of for souls first, but right now we're in the warfare for the heart of our nation. The goal of these people is to to seduce and to lead away from the faith those who will listen and follow. What, What I want you to get a hold of this morning is how to discern between that which is of God and that which is of Satan so that you can hear the right voice. Paul wants the same thing, and so he gives Timothy further insight into these people. Remember, again, we're in a warfare. Look, I had Ephesians 6.10. Let me just read this. 6, 10 through 13. Um, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We should underline that. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to understand the evil, or withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We're in a spiritual warfare, and no one's called a peace yet or a time out. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. It says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That's a horrible picture, actually. Paul begins to describe these people who teach these demonic doctrines. First, they are hypocrites. 
They live a lie. They say one thing and do another. Um, Doc and I were again, we were talking last night, and he brought out a book he's reading. It's called Woke Jesus. I haven't read it yet. I bought it last night. But I read the back, the flaps. I read all the, you know, recommendations for it. I went through the, the, um, uh, the chapter headings. We need to read it. <laughs> because what's happening in the church is, is we're assuming some doctrines that are leading us away from Jesus instead of to him. And the consequence is, is our churches have, have become, I mean, there's a lot of churches that are liberal and they've, they've walked away from the gospel. They've become woke, if you would. In other, in, in, as a result, they end up living a lie. They say one thing and do another. They're teaching and their lies do not add up to the same thing. The more you get to know them, the more you wonder what they're doing and what they teach unless you close your eyes to it. And that's what happened in Mormonism because I, I worked amongst Mormons for eight years and I, and I watched. If you really begin to study the Mormon scriptures, it's a comic book. I'm sorry, it's a comic book. How in the world could somebody believe that? It's not consistent what at all. One of Satan's biggest giveaways to his strategy is an inconsistent life. The people live a lie, and it has seared their conscience. That word seared comes from the, what we would call a, the branding of a cow. You know how they do that? They heat that branding iron up, and they lay that cow down, or they somehow keep him down on the ground. And they come out, there's a scar that's permanent. They do it to horses sometimes. They, they do it to all kinds of different animals. That sear burns something in. And when our consciences are seared, we've ha we have wickedness burned in. You need to think about that. When someone lets their conscience go, they, they sear it. And it's really is, it's awful. <laughs> they do not see after that or understand that they've gotten themselves involved in a lie. If you approach them about it, they will either respond with anger and pride or give you the deer in the headlight look so that they cannot comprehend what you're saying. There's a church here in town. Um, I had a church member at, at Canyon Ferry who decided he needed to go to another church. So he went to this other church in town. And in the process of going to the other church, he, um, he decided he needed to talk to the pastor because he was hearing some things that weren't just quite adding up. He wasn't sure. But he wanted to talk to him face to face. So he went and sat down with him, and they began to talk. And he said, uh, what do you understand about the deity of Jesus Christ? Is he God and man, or what, what do you understand about that? And this pastor looked him in the eye and said, that's an interesting philosophical discussion. Not. <laughs> now, you can, you can bring it down to that if you want to and, and discuss it on a philosophical basis, but the scripture says that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
and that God in the flesh came and died for you and me, and that because he died for you and me, he could pay the price because only God, who is perfect and sinless, could pay the price for my sin. And thankfully, my friend ended the conversation shortly thereafter and never went back in the door of that church. You would know the church and the pastor if I told you. You have to have discernment. You have to be able to see and understand and hear in the fog of all of our world what truth is. <clears throat> when I was, um, I used to go at the state capitol. I did some political things. And one day I went at the state capitol and there was this girl from Planned uh, Parenthood who wanted to give a presentation. And she stood up and began to introduce herself, and she said, I have a five-year-old daughter who I dearly love, and um, I'm doing this for my five-year-old daughter. I don't think that anybody should, uh, that everybody should be able to, uh, and she didn't say it this way, but she said that everybody should be able to kill their kid if they want to. Was there any hypocrisy there? <laughs> I mean, at that point, I sort of shut down. I just went, you got to be kidding <laughs> But that's the way she introduced herself. That's what's going on in our culture. They can, they can say, yes, I love my child, and this is a creation of God, but at the other side of it, I want to kill my child, or I want to abort my child and, and do it because of my pleasure, my selfish lifestyle, whatever I want to do. We're surrounded by stuff like that. You've probably heard um, our Homeland Security chief here in the last year or two, he's said that uh, evangelical Christians are terrorists. They're saying that Catholics are terrorists now. I don't know if you're aware of that, but you and I have been labeled. Where did that come from? That's a doctrine of demons. That's something that is straight out of the pit of hell. We're in a warfare. And Paul He's outlining this to Timothy so that, the, that he will not fall for some of the crazy things that probably came to him in that day. One of the things that people who get involved in all these doctrines of demons, they often demand legalism. Look at verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. They demand a form of legalism, thinking that their behavior will be justified before God by what they do, not by what he has already done through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. They demand discipline in at least two areas in this passage. Now, there's, if you go through the New Testament, he lists off a whole bunch of different things that make for legalistic religious behavior. But here they demand that you, don't, you, you have a certain kind of marriage or you don't marry, and that you eat a particular way. If Satan can keep people from procreating, that is nearly as good as not having us around at all. Now think about that for a second, but one of the things Satan's doing in the world today is he's trying to convince people that they shouldn't have children. I find this interesting. <laughs> Liberals in our world today, um, by and large, in the last 20 or 30 years, have had one child per, 
per family. And statistics right now state that those who are of a liberal persuasion about life will be almost extinct by 2030, simply because they don't have any children. Whereas on the other hand, conservative Christians are having in America an average of three, in some countries more than that, <clears throat> and <clears throat> given time, and assuming we disciple our children and win them to Christ, we're going to see a lot more strength in the Christian movement in the years to come. There'll still be a warfare going on. Until Christ comes again, there's going to be a war. The fallacy of the homosexual movement, which we celebrated this last week in one sense, the fallacy of the homosexual movement is that it's always only one generation away from extinction. Why do they go after our children? Because if they don't, there won't be. <laughs> when God finished creating daily in the Scripture, in Genesis 1, I'm going to look at it in a minute, but when God finished creating day by day in the, in the Genesis 1, what did he say at the end of it? Boy, this is good. He looked on it and he said, I, I did a good job right here. This is good. And so Paul is saying, he's, he's relating the fact that all that God has made is good. He did not say that only vegetables were good or that only meat was good. He later gave directions about how and what to eat for his people. And then in the book of Acts, he told Peter that all was to be partaken of. You've heard of the uh, missionary prayer, haven't you? Lord, they'll cook it. I'll eat it. Will you help keep it down? <laughs> I've been over on the mission field and, and eaten some things I'm not even really sure of. Often very tasty. but <laughs> If what one eats determines their level of spirituality, then what that person is being taught is part of the doctrine of demons. We don't call it that. That's what Paul's calling it. It takes away from the gospel of Christ and his finished work that we simply put our faith in. This also smacks of thinking that God is a, a grudging God who gave us earthly existence only or out of spite when in reality God gave us something that is good and that we should enjoy. I think um, Christians, by and large, at times we forget to enjoy the goodness of God. God is good. God, because he's good and He's 100% good. He's perfect. He can only give good. So perfect goodness can only give good things. To demand that we do not marry or that we do not uh, eat certain things is to question God's goodness. Instead, those who truly understand and know God should delight in his goodness and his graces. He's good. And that's what verses uh, 4 and 5 allude to. We're to delight... <clears throat> In God's graces. Look at verse 4. For every creature of God is good. Now are there any exceptions there? Paul said that. And he's a Jew. And there was a bunch of stuff he wasn't supposed to eat as a Jew. But as a Christian, God opened the table, if you would, up to him. I'm not suggesting you go out and eat snakes tomorrow, but listen. <laughs> God has created things and they're good. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Paul supplies the reasons for refusing this false and demonic teaching. All that God creates is good. 
and should be enjoyed. We're to enjoy his creation. Now, obviously, both food and marriage are a part of God's creation are to be enjoyed. Now, let's look at at, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. That's worth just stopping right there. We're in the image of God. We've got to go on. So, verse 27. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. And last verse there, or verse 30. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And so it was, and then this. And then God saw everything he had made indeed it was very good so that evening and the morning were the sixth day you and i were created in the image of god and we're good (laughs) and the things that he's created for us to eat are good now you you may decide that you want to my wife doesn't eat much meat but she does eat some good meat when i cook it occasionally (laughs) i like meat i don't eat so much salad it's all good. It's all good. It doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with whether I'm going to uh, go to heaven or not, or whether I'm going to be um, right with God or not. Paul says nothing is to be refused. That word in the Greek means tabooed, literally to be thrown away. To, de- to de- taboo something that God has created is, is not to have a place in a Christian's life. We should not taboo the things that God has said are good, and are things we should not partake of, yes, but they were created by God to begin with. And God has already put a restriction on them, or has God already put a restriction on them for our benefit. Most of what we wrestle with was either created by man or is abused by man and has become destructive to man. Verse 5, Paul tells the reader that, All God gives can be sanctified by the word and prayer. Um, I just want to say one little thing here. Um, I grew up saying a blessing at the table. And I think we ought to say a blessing for all the good things we we partake of. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here in a minute. We we, we pray over that. And when we pray, I think, this is BG, I think the scripture backs me up. I think we ought to thank God in Jesus' name. Because Jesus opened the way for us to have an understanding of who God is and what he's done for us and how he wants to uh, interact with us, that relationship. And there's this thing going on in the church today where we, we, um, we pray and then we say amen. But we forget to say something in Jesus' name. Paul says, or uh, Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Paul says we're to sanctify it in prayer. That means to set apart, to make it holy. That draws attention to the the need to pray 
at our meals and in, and the things we do. Uh, at the Bible school I went to, the, the, uh, the Bible school teacher, he said, when you get in your car, pray. You don't know what's about to hit you. <laughs> you know? Pray for protection. You know, when you go out in the evening, pray for protection for your children. When we leave our house on a vacation, we always pray God's protection over our house. Pray. Now note, legalism does a couple of things that can keep you from enjoying your relationship with God. First, legalism prevents us from enjoying the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Instead of depending on Him, we are set we are back to a set of rules and do's and don'ts instead of involved in a relationship with him. And second, legalism destroys our gratitude towards God. The legalists show such concern for practicing the negative that they miss the positive that God has done. God has provided for us in wonderful and positive ways. An attitude of gratitude drives legalists crazy. And drives the devil away. Richard Foster, who was an English writer, he wrote several great books. He said this. I'll end with this. He said, nothing can choke the heart and soul out of walking with God like legalism. Rigidity is the most certain sign that the disciplines have spoiled. The disciplined person is the person who can live life appropriately. And the discipline he's talking about are, you know, prayer and having a quiet time and meditating on the word and taking time with God. He's talking about those kind of spiritual disciplines. He gives this example. Consider the story of Hans the tailor. Because of his reputation, an influential entrepreneur visiting the city ordered a tailor-made suit. Now he's talking about London, so you can imagine this. When he came to pick up his suit, the customer found that one sleeve twisted that way and the other sleeve twisted this way, one shoulder bulged and the other sort of caved in. So the man, he pulled on the, pulled on the suit and managed to make, it, make his body fit. As he returned home on the bus, another passenger noticed his odd appearance and asked if Hans the tailor had made the suit. Receiving an affirmative reply, the man remarked, amazing, it's just amazing. I knew he, Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit fit so perfectly someone as deformed as you. <laughs> Often that is what we do in church. We get some idea of what Christian faith should look like. Then we push and shove and people in the most grotesque configurations until they fit wonderfully. That is death. It's a wooden legalism which destroys the soul. That's not what God has for us. God is a gracious, loving, good God. And he wants good, nothing but good for us. God does not want us to fall for Satan's false doctrines. He does not want us uh, to fall more and more, or he does want us to fall more and more in love with him and his son Jesus. He loves us, so he sent his son to put an end to legalism and deceptions of the devil. You know, the church is to be the light of truth. And we're in a dark world and we need a lot of light. Focus on Jesus. Be set free. Stay in the word and become discerning. And folks, find a discerning, loving, godly pastor who loves the word. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for these folks in this church. God, I pray that you would just give them a great amount of discernment so that they might see uh, the shadows of inconsistency that sometimes ruin what can be done in your name. Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, unite them together as a body so that they can work together to see their community reach for Jesus Christ, to see them call in a a godly, discerning, word-loving pastor who will uh, lead them in their relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray that you'd just bless them more than they could ever imagine. Pray you'd use your word here from 1 Timothy to just uh, challenge them to to look for what you have for them. And Lord, I know you have something special. So bless them. Bless our day now. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.